Welcome to the Nigel Lee Archive, brought to you by Living Leadership, where every fortnight we share with you a sermon from the late Nigel Lee to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Here's today's message. Thank you. Thank you very much for having the kindness to ask me to come and uh, join you. Yes, it's true. I work with a church. It's grown up to about 400, so we've just divided uh, happily into two. Um, only part-time. That keeps one foot anchored, as it were. But with the other foot, I can roam around uh, the globe. And my attachment to the Whitfield Institute in Oxford, which is a centre of, of Christian research and communication, that allows me to uh, go anywhere and do anything, really. So... Uh, Traveling the world and uh, coming here is all part of what I uh, what I do uh, with with Whitfield. Now, what we're going to do this uh, the three sessions that um, I'm opening up is look at something from the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter one this morning, chapters nine and ten uh, this afternoon, <clears throat> and chapter or part of chapter eleven uh, tomorrow morning. I was really struck by, is, it, is your name Mark? Did I get that? Mark's idea of um, jogging in principle. <laughs> That's the concept. So you could be in a prayer meeting while jogging in principle. In fact, you could be in bed while jogging in principle, sort of virtual jogging. Uh, what we're trying to undermine and challenge is sort of virtual Christianity this weekend, so that you don't actually lie in bed or do anything else and imagine that uh, that's the same as Christianity. Um, well, Christians go to bed, but anyway, let me not go any further with that, <clears throat> apart from James. Chapter 1 of Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, or literally in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, 
Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand? until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Not at first sight for us Gentiles, by and large, I guess, for Gentiles. Um, An easy passage. Let me try and open it up. Who was the book written for? Hebrews, of course. Um, Jews who had trusted Jesus. Nowadays, we might call them Messianic Jews, but there was a problem amongst them. This is now a few decades on from the death and resurrection of Jesus, Uh, Peter had preached on the day of Pentecost to thousands of Jews, many of whom had then become believers, but there are problems emerging amongst them. And a number of them, these Messianic Jews, are starting to drift back, going back into uh, Judaism, um, back to the old rituals and uh, practices that they had had uh, before they actually became believers. Why? Why do people do that? Well, maybe it was because they were missing some of the the, the music and the the processions and the pageantry and the ritual that had accompanied their uh, temple worship and so on. The old traditional ways, very reassuring and easy, and maybe they were just missing that. That's possible. Maybe it was because of the hostility of family and friends. the community around them, it got to them. Many of these people for whom this book was written in their early days as Christians had suffered an enormous amount of persecution. They were honorable, brave, courageous people who had lost their homes, lost their fields, uh, lost their relatives. I can remember once being with, I think it was Salford CU, for a very similar house party to this one. And there was um, a young student, first, second year girl, big brown eyes sitting near the front with a Bible open, obviously a brand new Bible. And I discovered that she had become a Christian from um, a Jewish background only a matter of two or three weeks beforehand. And she had phoned her parents to tell them what had happened to her. And they had told her, don't bother coming home at the end of term. 
If you're going to follow this Jesus, then we have nothing further to do with you. And she was there, having heard that down the phone, sitting amongst her new Christian friends. But obviously, her faith in Christ was going to cost her a great deal more than it would cost, or is costing us at the moment, by and large. Well, these are some of the pressures that some of these early Christians were under. Maybe, for some, driving them back, it was just a creeping sense of disappointment. We had hoped that our nation would see things as we do, that more of our friends and family would follow the Messiah, and it just isn't happening. In fact, um, after a couple of decades, it was very clear that although they'd heard the message, they'd seen the things that the apostles were doing, uh, they had, some of them, personal experience of Christ himself, they knew the undeniable facts of the, of the resurrection, they weren't going to turn and follow Christ. And so these Messianic Jews are finding themselves lonely, persecuted, disappointed. Some of them possibly are even disappointed with Christ that he hasn't come back yet. Because the early church seems to have been filled with a kind of bubbling excitement that we um, perhaps have gone to the other extreme of hardly thinking anything about this. Jesus was coming back any day now. And he hasn't come, and he hasn't come, and he's gone to heaven. And Well, is the whole thing true? And so warning signs were starting to appear. Um, a slowdown in their progress and growth. Some of them were increasingly missing from meetings that were designed for teaching and prayer and fellowship and building one another up and so on. And doubts are beginning to surface in the mind of some of these young Christians. Is all this really true? This stuff that I've been singing about and believing, uh, I've been going with the others uh, in the faith, but I don't know whether I can carry on. And so they're drifting back. And the root issue the writer can see is this. Who then really is Jesus? Because everything depends upon this. If he was, is God's son, then the fact that he has chosen to delay coming back, well, that's that's up to him. He may choose that. It will be for his be best purposes. Is what he said true because he is God? And if he is God, does he really know me and understand how I feel and what I go through and some of the pressures that come upon me when I'm back with my family or I'm facing my future or, or I'm just living with the disappointments and the difficulties of, of being a Christian? That's where he starts putting his finger. How is your relationship with Jesus? And I want you to notice right at the start that the writer doesn't begin by giving them an ear bashing and a ticking off for this drift. It would be easy to do it, wouldn't it? But he doesn't. Tactically, he sets out instead to tell them simply more about Jesus to encourage them uh, to help the readers get excited again. I mean, <laughs> sorry for mentioning this word again, James, but um, that is actually what the writer is trying to do, get them enthused a little bit. And you're supposed to say, Amen. Yes. This, this double act, I've worked it out. 
to, to see the Lord afresh. And in the 48 hours that we have together uh, here this weekend, that's what I hope uh, a little bit more of will happen in you. Because 1 John 5, 5 says, Who is the person that overcomes the world in the end? Who wins? Only the person who firmly believes that Jesus is the Son of God. They know it, they believe it, they're refreshed in it, they're seeing him, and it doesn't simply depend upon their feelings, which can go up and down depending on how much sleep you've had or what people have been saying to you or how your work's going or, or, or eating too much cheese or the time of the month or any of those kind of things that affect our feelings. So the whole of chapter 1 is telling us one thing after another about Jesus. And did you notice as we read through the chapter, there isn't one thing addressed to you for you to do in chapter 1. There are no exhortations. <laughs> as uh, some of us met um, this morning for prayer, and I was listening to different ones of you uh, praying, praying for these sessions, praying for our weekend together. And some were praying, you know, Lord, if you really want to rebuke us and you want to give us a good smacking and, and Lord, you know, challenge us and help us uh, to be willing to receive this. And I'm thinking, mm, yeah, good, well... Except that chapter 1 of Hebrews doesn't offer you any smacking at all. It is a rebuke-free zone. The beginning of chapter 2 will start to say, now watch it. Don't drift. It's the first of a number of warning passages that come in the book. But isn't it wonderful that we can read a whole chapter and not be given a, a slapping? other than what the Lord himself might be whispering quietly into your ear and heart, as opposed to the person sitting next to you. The Holy Spirit usually gets it right. No good you sitting there thinking, Lord, Lord don't be telling me that. It's the person. <laughs> so, <clears throat> how does it begin? In the past, God spoke this way, but now... God has climaxed everything that he's ever said and wants to say in Jesus. Do you know what God wants to say to you? You know, you sit there sometimes wondering, oh, what is God saying to me? What has God said to me? What is God saying to me now? What is God saying to me this weekend? What God is saying in its fullest maximum sense is Jesus. He wants to say Jesus to you. Now that's rich. That'll keep you going for a while. When you start to ponder what he said and what he did and what he was like and how he reacted and how he treated these people and, and what his plans. But Jesus is the, is the fullest expression of what God wants to say to you. In the past, God spoke in many different ways. He spoke through prophets. He spoke through priests. Priests often sinful. Kings sometimes tyrants. Prophets always partial. The whole of the Old Testament is full of God speaking in partial, incomplete ways. I mean, if you think of the prophets, even in the Old Testament, this is the word of God. A prophet like um, Amos will speak to you about justice. A prophet like Isaiah will speak to you much about righteousness and holiness. A prophet like Hosea will tell you much about God's love. But that's, that's all. They're limited. We need the revelation that God gives us in these different books. And we put the whole thing together. But no one prophet had the word of God fully. But now, in our time, in these last days, God has said, Jesus. Fully, completely, the word of God. He has spoken to us in his son. 
And this is his final word because it is himself. Sometimes you, you say, I mean, you might be on the phone to someone or you might be writing a letter to someone if you still do that, as opposed to text messaging. I don't know how you communicate with each other nowadays. Um, and what you say, you often feel is incomplete. Even if, if you're talking to someone um, and expressing what's really on your heart, you can often, isn't it true, feel, I didn't get that quite right. And they didn't fully understand. And what I really meant to say was, this is a very common human experience. But God has fully and adequately and perfectly expressed all that he wants to say in Jesus. And it's because what God says is not exactly words. It's the living word. God has expressed himself in a person with all the complexity and richness of a, a person. This is the climax of God speaking. And so the writer says to these Jews, look, I'm not asking you to abandon what you used to have in the past, the Old Testament, the Torah, the law. And, and I'm not saying, you know, give away all that. God spoke in that. But now what you have to do is listen to some Galilean peasant who was crucified. No. God has now fully expressed himself in a, in a man, in a human being who was also fully God. And then immediately he goes on without hardly a pause, a comma only, to say, now let me tell you some things about him. I'll tell you seven or eight if you give me the time. Because this will help you worship. Um, the tactics of the Holy Spirit writing this is very interesting. It is very hard for you to backslide, to desert someone that you are truly worshipping. You can't do it. Not if you really are expressing your heart and your love, you worship someone. You, it's very hard to turn away from them and give up following them. But it's also very hard to worship someone if there isn't content in your worship. If it's just emotion that you sort of whip up, well, it's very easy to give up that and drift off. And even an hour later, be thinking something that is absolutely inconsistent with what you were singing from the OHP. But if there is content in your worship, thing I mean, in that sense, worship is like um, is like laughter. It's a response. It's a responsive thing. If you see something funny, <laughs> you worship. Now, I, how can I get you to how can I get you to laugh? Right. What you do, everyone? I want you to laugh, please. You you make your mouth go like this, hmm? and then you make your stomach muscles go. <laughs> and you make noises come out. Could you please do this? <laughs> Stomach's going up and down, mouth wide open, eyes slightly screwed up, and make noises. <laughs> <laughs> that isn't laughter, is it? But actually, you looking at me doing stupid things in front of you does lead to laughter because you see something funny, so you laugh. It's a response. In the same way, our worship is to be built on and based on content. We are seeing something of the Lord. The person who is not regularly reading Scripture, listening to the teaching of Scripture, thinking about the objective stuff of the faith and of the Lord's promises and of the Lord's doing, will find it very hard to worship. You come into a meeting and then someone will, will sing and, and you sing along with them, but if it isn't actually a genuine response to the objective things of God's character and word and nature and so on, it isn't in the end worship. And so 
the writer says, look, I, I don't want you to drift. I want you to follow the Lord with a full heart. Let me tell you some things that will help you follow him, that will help you worship, and that you'll see him uh, better through. Seven things. Number one, he is the heir of everything. End of verse two. He has been appointed the heir of all things. The ultimate owner of everything. I come into places like this, you know, I wander around inside the house, I look at the pictures, and I think, oh, I'd love to own a place like this. My wife would hate it. She'd have to look after it, probably, clean it. But I, I could imagine myself owning, owning stuff like this. And I get, you know, it doesn't last very long, but I, I sort of walk around running little things in my head. I'm the, I'm the owner. I'm the landowner. I, I, I can have guests. I can have a library. I can... Do you ever feel like that? When I watched James and, and Helena yesterday, before everyone arrived, sort of sitting halfway up the stairs, just sort of gazing at the pictures. And... <laughs> I don't know what was going on in their heads. It'd be nice to own a little place like this. A tiny little place, Blaithwaite House, stuck on, you know, on the outer edge of Europe, where it rains all the time. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you mind owning an island in the Caribbean? Be nice. And a plane to get there, all free. Beaches, coconut. Holidays all the time. He is the ultimate owner of everything. It is all going to be laid at his feet. Every single bit. The one that the rabbis despise as a Galilean peasant. The one that some of your academic teachers equally look down on and make those snooty, disparaging remarks about. He is God's appointed owner. Now, why does the writer start there? Well, imagine you're suffering persecution. You've lost your home and your business. People won't buy anything from you anymore because you've become a Christian. They chuck you off your land because they don't want you in that village anymore. And you're not going to get an inheritance anymore because your parents or grandparents have decided to punish you for becoming a believer. And you've done that out of loyalty to Jesus. And it's cost you everything. It's great comfort, isn't it, to know that the one that you follow is in the end the owner of everything. And is going to share it with you. I go from time to time to places like Nepal and uh, Pakistan and try and help and encourage the Christians there. And I was there in Pakistan in February. I met a man who had been a professor at the University of Quetta, Quetta in western Pakistan, big Taliban town. And I need to give you the story very briefly. He <clears throat> had become dissatisfied with Islam. He was a married man, two sons. And the Lord appeared to him in a vision. In fact, every single person from Muslim background that I met that trip in February, every single Muslim had had a vision of Christ. It is a remarkable thing that is going on in certain parts of the Middle and Near East at the moment. And gradually, and through much persecution and being beaten up in the mosque and so on, he, he became a follower of Christ. Two weeks later, his father-in-law turned up. You become a Christian. 
Yes. He removed his wife and two sons, and he's never seen them since. Simply took them away from him. He was threatened uh, that he would uh, lose his life in a back alley. Thugs from the mosque. The university, uh, where he was a professor of uh, plant biology, offered him six years unpaid leave of absence, which is a polite, culturally appropriate way of pointing him in the general direction of his bicycle. It eventually became impossible for him to live in Quetta. I met him in another town uh, in, um, in Pakistan, uh, where he's living in a single room, alone, above a church. He actually, I mean, he speaks six languages. He understands eight. He's, he's bright. He uh, comes from a military background, although he was a, an academic. His people, his mother tongue people group, are from the Hazaras, who are folks that live in Afghanistan. I don't know whether you remember seeing um, on the maps of Afghanistan during the, the bombing, there's Kabul, and, and the country sort of goes like that, and there's a range of mountains, can you remember, just to the west of Kabul. That's where the Hazaras live. They originally were left there following um, the Mongol invasions of Genghis Khan. He looks a little different. They were among the people that the Taliban particularly uh, practiced genocide on. He is a Hazara. And he said to me uh, in February that his great prayer and desire is that the Lord, if, if, if he would, would make him, as he put it, a Moses to my Hazara people. He's intending going to Bible college and then going into Afghanistan uh, in order to be an apostle amongst those people and lead them to Christ. But he has nothing, nothing left. Books are gone. Job's gone, wife gone, son's gone. He showed me a picture of his two boys with tears running down his face as we stood at the back of this little church in Faisalabad. The Lord he serves, before whom he bows and worships, is the one who is the ultimate owner of everything. So you can take a little bit of the results of being a Christian in our society where sometimes you don't get the promotions. You are held back. You sometimes lose your, your job and so on. Because he's the heir of everything. Secondly, he's the creator of the entire universe, says the um, next part of, of verse 2. It's all his doing, his craftsmanship, all the oxygen in the sea, all the rainforests breathing like lungs for the planet, uh, all those stars, you know, the Graham Kendrick um, line about he, he flung stars into space. It's, it's a remarkable line of poetry. The most memorable thing I think Kendrick ever wrote for me. Anyway. <laughs> Can you imagine? Just take a handful of stars and just tuck them into space and then they all sit there. He did it all. The Lord did it. Do you remember the, the story in Genesis 1? How the Lord God brought order and harmony out of chaos and darkness. Who was doing that? Who actually was responsible for doing that? Jesus himself. When everything was formless and insubstantial, he spoke, and then spoke again, and then spoke again. And 
every time he spoke, things moved a little bit more towards perfection. I have no idea how long this took. Scripture doesn't, doesn't tell us, except that it was brought into being by God speaking, so that things took shape and took usefulness. Now, he can do the same in our lives. When you feel that your future is formless, void, your life is insubstantial, things are chaotic. Well, your Bible begins with the Lord Jesus Christ speaking into a chaos and making order and harmony and shape. The God of Genesis 1 is yours. And it is Jesus who actually did it. So you may bring him your darkness and your confusion and your uncertainty and so on. Thirdly, he is the radiance, the shining out of God's glory, says the beginning of verse 3. Do you want to see the glory of God? Would you like to? Do you ever think about that? Would it fascinate you? What would it look like? Look at Jesus. Read the Gospels regularly because you will see what the Bible interestingly describes as the glory of God. And it's complex. When Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, you remember that vision? He was, he was in the temple and uh, he looked up and, and there he could hardly get the words to describe. Everything was shaking as if in an earthquake and I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his, the train of his robe filled the temple and the cherubim were, were saying, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord. Do you know who that was that he saw? John chapter 12 tells you that it was Jesus. Jesus in glory. The presence and the glory of Jesus shaking the whole building and making Isaiah think, I, I, I've, I cannot speak. I am a man of unclean lips. And I live amongst a people who are just as bad. I'm no better than them. And then God begins to call him. And then John chapter 1 verse 14 um, talks about how we have seen his glory. He dwelt amongst us and we saw his glory full of grace and truth. The two together. So he's both glorious with, with such a majesty that would... Uh, shake the earth to its foundations and he is also the one um, upon whose knee children can sit. It's a remarkable thing. How close can you get to God? Little children could sit on God's knee and run their fingers through the hairs on his chest and, and poke their fingers in his ear and, and pull God's earlobes and be sick over him. What? What an astonishing God we have. That is the shining out of God's glory, his attitude to widows and uh, children and religious types and so on. Then in verse, further on in verse 3, we see that he is the exact representation of what God is like. Does God ever tell stories? Does he ask questions? Does he 
care about us? Yes, you see it in Jesus, his priorities, his choices, what made him angry. This is all truly God. And so as you read a gospel story, and you ought to be reading the gospels all the time, whatever else you read in scripture, never get very far away from the gospels because it, it shows us what God is like. The exact representation, the shining out of God's character. He is also, fifthly, the one who holds the universe together by um, the force and power of his word. This is a revelation. Scientists, some of them, spend half a lifetime searching for what it is that holds the universe together, the, the unifying principle, what makes it work. Here's the answer. Hebrews 1 tells you. What makes the universe run its orderly course with its laws of gravity and entropy and, and so on? It is the word of Jesus. <laughs> this is difficult for the science because they, they can't actually sort of test and measure and, uh, and so on. But this actually is what keeps the whole thing from breaking apart and spinning off into space. And We could very easily drift towards the sun and get burnt up or out into the frozen wastes of outer space. I'm not, I, I wonder sometimes when the crucifixion happened, why God didn't allow it to happen. That God's own son could come and be so kind and so loving and so truth-telling and people take him and nail him to a cross and spit on him and say, we will not have this man anymore. It would have been no problem at all for God to have unloose the planet from its place in the universe and let it just go. But he didn't. The one who holds the whole thing together. And so when things come apart in your own life and work, as they can do, you have in Jesus one who can hold it together, can make order out of chaos and so on. He provided, says the end of verse 3, um, purification for our sins. The creator of the whole thing, when it had all gone wrong and gone into rebellion and started groaning, he came himself to put it right. And he gathered up the sin of every one of us, and we are just a tiny little number here in this room, and he laid it all on his own shoulder and died on the cross. 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus Christ God's Son purifies us from all sin, even the secret stuff, even the stuff that we don't want others to know about. It can all be purified, covered, cleansed, erased, washed away by the blood of Christ. It is unbelievable, except that we have been brought to believe it by the working of this same Lord who's whispered quietly, who has spoken to us in a way we can hear, who has shown us little glimpses of his glory, who's made us appreciate him, the objective stuff. And when he had done all that, says the very end of verse 3, he sat down at God's right hand. Now, <laughs> this is actually the main verb of all, all these sentences. It is a remarkable thing. These are all subordinate clauses. The point of the beginning of um, Hebrews 1 is he sat down. He sat down. That's the main point of the chapter so far. Having done all this, he sat down. 
It is an extraordinary thing. It is one of the main emphases of the book of Hebrews. You'll get the same thing told you in chapter 8, verse 1, chapter 10, verse 12, chapter 12, verse 2. He sat down. (laughs) Why is that so extraordinarily important? One of the peculiarities of the Jewish tabernacle and temple was that it contained no chairs. You wouldn't find a chair ever in, in, in the tabernacle. Why? Because the priests had to do their work standing all the time. They were never able, allowed, to sit and flop and put their feet up. Jesus is being presented to us as the great high priest of all the people. And you know, don't you, the pattern on the Day of Atonement, that day in the year where sacrifice was offered, a solemn day, for the sins that people did not know about. If they knew about sin, there was sin offering prescribed in Scripture. They had to come and bring it. But they were wise enough to know, and God indeed told them, that they sinned in ways for which, well, they they didn't understand, and they didn't know what to do. And so once a year, the high priest, representing all the people, would make a very special sacrifice and carry the blood of that sacrifice right into the most holy place in the temple. We'll come back to this a little bit later on this afternoon. And offer that there on the top of the Ark of the Covenant to cover over and erase the sins that we don't know about. Isn't it wonderful that God has given already in history an indication and a promise that he forgives the things about you that you don't even know yet are offensive to him. It isn't just that he forgives the things that you get round to confessing. He forgives all those things which you ought to if you knew more, but you don't know yet and haven't been taught. And he has provided forgiveness for all those as well. Now, as the high priest goes in to the most holy place, and spreads the blood out. He doesn't pull up a chair and sit down, just take five minutes in. <laughs> Those people outside, it's good to get a break, isn't it, really? No, it was an extremely solemn moment. In fact, they, what they used to do, this isn't <clears throat> required in Scripture, but what they used to do was tie a rope around his middle. Do you know that? And the rope went outside, and there were people on the end of the rope. And if God should turn savage against them and decide finally in spite of all that he'd said that he wasn't going to forgive them or the nation they'd pull him out quickly their little bells around the bottom of his garment which sort of tinkled as he moved and if if the tinkling stopped they were to pull because it would be a sign that he'd been struck down it's extraordinary business no question of him sitting down job done but it says in hebrews That when Jesus, our great high priest, went right into the presence of God, he sat down. Because the work is done. His blood is enough for all the sin of whoever will believe. Whoever, anybody. He has come home carrying not an animal's blood, but his own at home in the holy presence of God, the work accomplished. He is the 
only one. No other prophet, guru, religious teacher ever does that, can go right into the presence of God in his own right and sit down. Now, this was very difficult for Jews to get their heads around. I've just gone very quickly through things we could take uh, longer to meditate on each one. And the Jew would have been saying, these people in danger of drift, they're on the edge of drift, they would have said, I, I know, I can see that he was different. But how can he be God? I mean, for God to come, God Almighty, God the Creator, to come and let people do to him what they did. How can that be God? Perhaps he was not God, but an angel. Angels were great, glorious beings and used to come uh, visiting the planet on a number of occasions throughout the Old Testament. Remarkable beings. Surely God couldn't come. Maybe Jesus was an angel. And we give him due honor by speaking of him with, with some worship. But he's only an angel. And so the writer faces this idea from verse 5 onwards in our chapter. And says, now look, Jesus was far greater than any angel. And he quotes, and this is why it's a little bit strange for us. Uh, to absorb it, but he quotes one Old Testament passage after another, showing that God had already prepared the answer to this question back in Scripture. He knew the question was going to arise, and so he'd already set out in the Psalms, he quotes one Psalm after another, the answer to that particular problem or idea. In verse 5 it says, look, Jesus had a far greater name than any angel. God calls him my son. Quotation from Psalm 2, verse 7. God never says to an angel, my son. No, they're just angels. He calls Jesus, my son. Far greater name. In verse 6, he has a far greater majesty. Let all the angels worship him. God commanded all the angels in existence to worship Jesus. We're coming up to Christmas. And, you know, you'll read that little bit, or someone will read for you the, uh, how, you know, the heavens were full of the heavenly host, all singing. What's happening? All the angels that there are, there's a finite number, all been created, and they all turned up in a sort of mass grandstand of angels as they watch Jesus being born. And they erupt into a sort of hallelujah chorus. They're all there as a sort of command performance. They have all been commanded to be there. And they're probably very keen and eager. Ooh, look at that. Ooh. Glory to God in the highest, they start to sing. Because God had commanded all the angels to worship him. Now, the Greek may mean that, or it may mean, if you look at verse 6, and when God again, it's a, it's a question to do with the positioning of the word again, and when God again brings his firstborn into the world. Well, when is that going to happen? Hmm? Second coming. Because God is again going to bring Christ into the world. And again, the skies will be filled with exactly the same as you could see in Luke chapter 2 when they were all singing and surprising the shepherds. And, and It's going to happen again. And I'm going to hear it. God will again have a command performance 
of all the angels there. Now, no angel is ever commanded to worship another angel. They're just angels. God commands his angels to worship his son. Far greater name, far greater majesty, and a far greater authority, says verse 8. A throne in heaven that will last forever. About the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. No angel was ever given that kind of authority to be able to sit on a, a throne, a location of government forever and ever. Satan wanted it. Back in heaven, Satan saw that throne which was designed for Christ to sit on and wanted it and, and led a mass rebellion amongst other beings in heaven. That throne is for Christ. And so Satan was cast out. Jesus has been given it because he alone is worthy to have it because he governs with understanding. The problem with our government, any government, whether it's Tony Blair or Saddam Hussein or whatever, they don't really understand the people. They don't know the people. They, they're Even the best intentioned of their Actions are, are usually blunt in their effects. Jesus is worthy to sit on the governmental throne of the universe because he has been tempted in all points like us. He has suffered like us. He understands what it's like. He's qualified to sit there. That throne is for Jesus. Wonderful. He's given it. And then um, in verses 10 to 12, uh, <laughs> The writer tells us a little bit more about Jesus. He gets a sort of another burst of excitement and he, he quotes another psalm, Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. And he says, you know, he, he created the whole thing and one day he will eventually throw it away. If you wear a T-shirt for, how long do you guys normally? Come on. A day? A month? Depends how much jogging in it you do really <clears throat> but however long there comes a moment when it really needs washing <clears throat> and you take it off for the last time before that wash and you throw it under the bed where it can sit for another month perhaps before eventually it goes to the wash because it's been used mm -hmm. now it says it's a brilliant idea um, the writer says, the whole universe is like that. It's like a garment that will one day be taken off and just put in the wash. It served its purpose. It needs washing. It's a remarkable thing, isn't it? The Himalayas, Africa, served its purpose. God has a few more ideas of physics and chemistry and he's going to create a new one. And so the old one, he says there, it will wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment they will be changed, but you remain. He remains forever. And he puts aside the dirty clothes stuff. Now, no angel ever had God himself, almighty God, adjusting his footstool. You imagine Christ is seated, his job's done. You know, have you ever, I don't know, perhaps you never have, decorated a room. It'll come. You know, you paint, you wallpaper. You know, and there comes a moment where you think, done. And then you sit down 
you get, get the kettle on, and you just look. The perfectionist in you'll notice the fiddle bit. Basically, there comes a moment when it's done. He sat down. Job done. And his feet are lifted up and placed on a small footstool. The footstool that Christ can rest his feet on are all his enemies. And the picture here is of God saying, Excuse me, let me just... Just move the footstool. Oh, that's good. God, Almighty God, will arrange the footstool for Christ so that although he has enemies and will have people who will remain his enemies on into eternity, he has arranged them so that he is no longer discomforted by them. He is entirely comfortable. God doing that. That's what it says. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet. Now, no angel ever had God doing that. Jesus has it happening right now, even as we speak. So the last verse comes. Don't misunderstand the role of angels or confuse them with God's Son. Angels can, at times, seem like awesome, glorious beings, more usually, in my experience, quite normal, mundane beings but they are only in existence as <clears throat> a group of servants to run errands for you. They are like God's motorcycle couriers. Angels. They are um, security guards. Messengers. Errand boys. Ministering spirits, it says in verse 14, <clears throat> sent to serve those who are or who will inherit salvation. Is that you? Yes. God has brought into being a, a whole army of supernatural servants whose duty it is, is to serve you. In, um, in ways that you don't see and in ways that sometimes you do. Now don't confuse the Son of God with these run-around uh, motorcycle couriers. He is God. Then comes, in the first four verses of chapter 2, this warning passage, and it's the first of a series that come in the book. Don't drift in your Christian life. <clears throat> you always will. There is a tendency always to drift if you stop paying attention closely to the Lord's word. You can be like a boat that's sort of come into a harbor, and it's, it's alongside the quayside, but it's never actually thrown any ropes ashore and tied up. It's just there. And throughout the Christian unions of this country, there are, I think, hundreds and hundreds of students who are alongside the truth. They're very close to it. They come to all the meetings, but they have never actually, in their heart of hearts, tied up. It's sort of there as a set of friendships and possibilities, and they go along with it for a while. But in the long run, what will happen is when the breezes start to blow offshore, <clears throat> in work and marriage and persecution and difficulty, <clears throat> they will drift. They'll drift away from the truth because they never really anchored themselves to it. And they finish up on the rocks. Now, don't drift, says the writer. It's very, very serious because in the Old Testament, the message that was given by angels, he says, well, it was binding. It was authoritative. They spoke when they came to, to Moses and the prophets and so on. They spoke with, with uh, 
the authority of being God's appointed servants. And disobedience to what angels said led to awful consequences. Think of Lot's wife. They said to Lot and his wife, come on, get out. We're going to destroy the city. And so they were running out, but she, her heart wasn't in it. She wasn't really interested in, in, in leaving all this stuff. And so she turned back, pillar of salt. The consequences are serious. How much more serious will it be if after Jesus himself has spoken to you through his word, through his spirit, about such a great salvation, as James was was using that phrase earlier on, it's from this passage, you in the end, I'm actually more interested in my life in a range of things, whatever. It's to do with your salvation. That's what's at stake. Because it has been explained by Jesus himself. It has been confirmed by the apostles that were with him. It has been underscored and authenticated by God himself with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Spirit, says verse 4. And so a lazy attitude to what the Lord has said, the distinctions that he's made in life, the priorities that he's called you to, the way you should actually think and live, how you should respond to people. If you start to become drifty and you couldn't care less really about that, just water off a duck's back. Don't pay any attention. Don't take it seriously. Don't build your life on it. It will, in the end, undermine and destroy any possibility of salvation. Such a great salvation, says the writer, been bought and paid for by the blood of God's own Son. It's been offered to you perfect, free, for you to enjoy. It will take you on into eternity in the most unimaginable things. You, your mind cannot conceive the good and great things that God has already prepared for you, says the Scripture. God has spoken to us fully in Christ. It's his last call. So listen up. And I've used up all your discussion group time. Lord, forgive me. Let's pray. Father, for your Son, again, we we thank you. May the words that we sing and the thoughts that we think when we open your word increasingly take foundational roles in our life. That we don't flop and drift and slide and slither around, but we become men and women of Christ-like dignity and steadfastness and courage. Help us, Lord, truly again this morning to see some new things about him and be excited and let our minds and hearts dwell on your glory that we might become more like you. For your name's sake, amen. Thank you for joining us today. The Nigel Lee Archive is brought to you as a podcast by Living Leadership. For more information on the Nigel Lee Archive or Living Leadership's other ministries, please visit www.livingleadership.org. God bless.